This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Morena, no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo Irorangi Onatangata o Manawatu. It is a Friday morning, uh, in case you were unaware, and a few of us probably uh, won't be given uh, the current situation. Uh, it is Friday, the 3rd of September, uh, and of course, we are still in level three. We've got a level three weekend here in Manawatu. Everywhere south of Tamaki Makoro um, will be in level three with the announcement from uh, the Prime Minister are due on Monday uh, to let us know what will be happening from level two onwards. Just a little update on the numbers. Uh, As of 9am yesterday, of course, uh, there were 53 new cases, uh, 45 at the border. um, uh, So active cases, 45 at the border, and total community cases at the moment, 725. Um, 45 people currently in hospital. 28% of the population or eligible population are fully vaccinated. And uh, over half, 54.3%, have one dose or more. I think the thing to uh, point out here as we bring in MP for Palmerston North, Tangi Utakeri, is that these uh, numbers, these daily numbers, uh, certainly the peaks over the last few days, these were the numbers, Tangi, that we were seeing during the first lockdown across the country, uh, but this time round limited just to Auckland, really. Yes, Morena Fraser, lovely to speak with you in Level 3 in Pami um, this morning. And I just want to start by acknowledging what everyone has been doing over the last wee while uh, to stamp this virus out. And yes, like you, actually, I wake up in the morning and think, actually, is it Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday? Each day seems to be very similar in a a lockdown or, or restriction environment. But yes, those numbers are starting to track in a trend that has been expected uh, based on what everyone is doing. And, uh, you know, we've we've seen this previously. Um, we know that it's on a, a good trajectory uh, and that is going down. You know, there has been a little bit of a, a variation in, in the actual daily numbers, but the trend is still heading in the right direction. And that is largely, well, actually, more than largely, it is due to the good work that people are doing, including here in, in Palmerston North. I find it quite interesting, and it's perhaps because one of the lead people in this fight against COVID and this Delta strain is not a politician. But when... The numbers sort of undulate unexpectedly to the, the, the layman up a bit. Ashley just comes on and goes, don't worry, it's not unexpected. We've seen this before. We'll be fine. And I just sit there and go, yep, OK, Ashley said it's good. I'm fine. Uh, the government must be thrilled that they have uh, Dr. Bloomfield alongside to to advise on this, because this is the other thing. He advises the government. The government is under no obligation to actually do what he says, um, although you'd be wise to. Well, you're right. He does advise the government, and we hear from the Prime Minister and other ministers on a, on a weekly basis, and actually more frequently than that, about the nature of the advice that he gives to the Cabinet when those decisions are made. I think it's also fair to say that, you know, New Zealanders have 
become um, used to Dr Bloomfield um, and with that comes an element of trust. I certainly appreciate the way in which he explains things. Um, last week we alluded to the fact that I'm a new member of Parliament's Health Select Committee so I expect to see quite a bit more of Dr Bloomfield um, in, in the weeks ahead and, uh, and time ahead but he's able to explain things in a way that I think people are able to firstly understand and provide the, the assurance. Um, and if we think about, you know, his background in health as a practitioner, um, it makes it even more so. Uh, I'm a, a, a raving lefty, as everyone knows, and so I think that oh, the health of right. the the health of the country comes paramount. But of course, the government has to take uh, Doctor Bloomfield's uh, med- medical and health advice, and then mash that up with the economic implications uh, and, and and other larger factors to try and navigate this without too much detriment to any one. Uh, community or community of interest. Uh, Have there been ever any instances where Dr. Bloomfield's advice has maybe not been seized with both hands because of other interests like the economy? Well, I think you're correct in the sense that there are so many other uh, issues that need to be considered when decision makers are making these decisions. And no doubt the advice will form part of that. It's fair to say also that around the cabinet table, um, there are a number, all ministers have different portfolios. And so there will be issues in those portfolios that ministers and their ministerial colleagues will want to bring to the attention of the cabinet and to work that through. It's also, I think, really important to remind uh, everyone that, you know, the, the position of this government prior to the election, uh, going through that lockdown in 2020 and currently as well, albeit the, the variant is, is quite different, much more uh, difficult this time round, is that the position of the government has always been really clear. And that is the way in which we combat this virus is by having an absolutely strong, solid public health response. And that has really directed and determined a lot of the course of action. So sure, there are competing, I guess, considerations around, you know, economic um, activity and, and support packages. There are considerations around sports and what events might happen, even in racing, you know, uh, something dear to my heart, whether that should continue or not. But these are all things that are put on the table um, and and based on the advice, those decisions are made by the Cabinet. And that's a collective group as well. I, I guess it comes as small comfort, though, to, for example, and this is not a, a, a real-world example, I'm, I'm not aware of it, but, for example, the small family butcher that was struggling during Level 1 wanted wanted to open under level four, saw themselves as an essential service, and yet the government didn't. They weren't allowed to open, and they've had to shut the shop. You know, that that sort of thing, it must come as, as, as small comfort to them. Yeah, I mean, I, and I've heard from those uh, traders in our local community as well, and no doubt that, you know, the restrictions uh, do have an impact on the ability for certain types of businesses to to open. But let's step back and look at why that, what the rationale behind that decision uh, is all about. And it's to limit the, the movement uh, between people. We know that the transmissibility of this virus is due largely because people can move around. You know, that's why there are these restrictions on, on people's movement, why when you go to the supermarket or a dairy under strict level four and even level three uh, restrictions, that there are capacity limits on how you go about that. It's not simply just rocking up to the supermarket, as we all know, that there are limits on the numbers of people in that particular store. Here at my local um, dairy, you know, the limit is five and it's one in, one out and, and they monitor that. So I get that 
there have been some uh, businesses and individuals as well in terms of their employment opportunities that have been limited. But I do indicate that as a government, we have put in place uh, support for those businesses and support for individuals. And my office has been working alongside businesses, but also individuals to ensure that they access that service that has been provided by the government. And what I would also say is the feedback that we are receiving from people is that they're able to access that in a really timely uh, manner. And, you know, I think we, we hear that not just in the office and my team, but in the community as well, uh, even on social media, how people apply for the wage subsidy. And it's a very quick turnaround. That's the expectation of the government. And that's what's being delivered. I heard that the turnaround in some cases was a matter of hours. You know, it, it, obviously it was right. working fairly quickly. Uh, you, 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 you spoke there about limiting the, the movement of people in the community. So let's talk about limiting movement with the, the, the COVID positive resident of MIQ, also known as a complete numpty, uh, breaking out and uh, not running rampant, that's unfair, but certainly running free uh, and not obeying uh, the restrictions that were put on, on him as someone who is COVID positive. Uh, not a good look for MIQ. Well, what I would say is that's extremely unfortunate, and the reports that I've read uh, this morning indicate that, you know, the Brigadier uh, King, who is responsible through MB for the management of these MIQ facilities, has uh, initiated a review. I understand also that they've put in place some immediate um, steps, uh, particularly around the, the individual in question. But yeah, look, nobody wants people not taking their responsibility seriously, uh, particularly where you are an individual who, you know, has more opportunity than others to place others in the community at risk. Uh, is this not yet just another bit? I mean, firstly, he, he was there um, because he wouldn't stay at home. Uh, as someone COVID positive, so they put him into MIQ. Uh, should he not have been in police custody straight away? I mean, he, th- th- this is the law that he's broken by not staying at home. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that he was uh, in a in an MIQ facility and has subsequently been transferred, you know, to the the, the Jet Park facility. Um, I know listeners and others might think, well, what I'm about to say is a bit stupid, but we must remember that these are allegations uh, in terms of the, the the nature of what he has committed or not. And, and given my previous background, I'm really clear on that. So I don't want to comment too much on the individual circumstance here uh, because it is potentially a matter that is before the courts. But what I do want to indicate is that everyone expects, including the government, including you know members of this community, that people abide by the rules. And it's really unfortunate that this individual perhaps has not. The government apparently is looking to uh, commandeer, let's say, a couple more facilities and kit them out to be MIQ ready for uh, more border activity and and maybe more instances, hopefully rare though they are, uh, like this one. Um, Is this not yet just more evidence and more justification for a bespoke, custom-built MIQ facility somewhere that is designed for this purpose, not retrofitted on top of what should be a hospitality outlet? I think what um, you know, listeners will be aware of is that the government had made clear that that's not part of the plan at the moment. Um, but what has obviously also become clear is that as we've brought these additional facilities um, on, on spec, 
to become a full MIQ or quarantine facility, that the nature of the virus in situations like this can be very tricky and very difficult. And so while, you know, we are looking at the uh, shore hotels at the moment that we have, it's really important that they are fit for purpose, that the ventilation and the like are up to spec, uh, because we don't want to be placing individuals into um parts of infrastructure uh, where it's not going to be that productive. So, as I've said, the government have have not indicated that that's uh, something that we are going to do in the short term or medium future. But uh, for now, it's actually about the capacity issues that we have and ensuring that even in a community outbreak, which is just the situation that the country is in right now, and listening to those numbers that you've, uh, you know, referred to again or reminded us of this morning, um, indicates that, yes, we had to put a pause. The same situation applies for, um, you know, the voucher system. And there have been some announcements to that system made by the minister just a couple of days ago. Uh, But, you know, they had to be put on pause because we had a community outbreak and we had to use the infrastructure that we had in place to effectively reaccommodate um, those individuals into quarantine um, and MIQ facilities. Is this all fiscally prudent? I mean, you're retrofitting at the government's expense a a private building run by a private company, a commercial company, retrofitting all the ventilation and stuff, uh, constantly monitoring it, looking at it, making sure that it's fit for purpose, waiting for the opposition to cry foul at some uh, issue where two people touched a door handle at the same time and then sending in swathes of investigators to make sure that's all right, make the necessary changes. And at the end of this, either ripping out all of that infrastructure that you've put in or just handing it over to the commercial entity that didn't pay a cent and probably is still making money. You're probably paying uh, fair rates for all these rooms. Well, I I would accept that, you know, um, COVID is costly. I mean, that's that's the reality. The fact oh, that I, the I, don't, did... I, I don't dispute that. But would it not be more effective use of that money to build a sure, entirely designed yep. for purpose entity? It, so that's that's not about the spend, but on 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 bang for buck, really, and making sure that you know when we're spending this money, that it's um, fit for the future, that it's uh, a, a facility where its purpose can be. Um, you know, not one of being retrofitted, but actually fit for purpose. Um, and and I understand that. But for the time being, uh, the reality is that the government had to move quickly. Uh, that, you know, in most circumstances, you can't just simply build a quarantine facility and then simply be waiting um, for that to happen when we've got people that need to be going into quarantine. So the, the situation, the dynamics of the virus, and I'm talking about in 2020, but also more so evenly with, with the Delta variant, has necessitated or required us to move in the way that we have. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. We are here with Tang Yutikeri, Memo Parimata o Papayoya uh, on the catch-up this morning. If you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. One more COVID-related thing and then we'll try and cram in uh, a couple of others. Um, But around the the support that people can get during level three and indeed back in level four, uh, we speak to a lot of, uh, as you're aware, Tangi, a lot of um, local government representatives 
representatives. We've pulled in uh, Jason McDowell from the City Council, who's been the sort of EOC controller uh, during this time uh, on the City Council slot. We've spoken to Helen Warboys uh, from Manawatu District Council. It seems that the councils are, I'm not going to say relaxed, but a lot more at ease with the situation this time round. And that's largely, I think, because, eh, well, there's two reasons. One, we've been here before, uh, but also the MSD are doing a lot more of the uh, coordination of welfare support that last year, you know, as as again, as you're aware, the city councillors were on the ground uh, handing out prescriptions and groceries. Um, is that is that working well? Because it struck me that having all the, the local body, the local government people around would be, you know, all the knowledge is there, uh, some of the infrastructure is there already, not necessarily uh, there with MSD. Yeah, I think it's a good observation that that things are working well, uh, that the community and the assistance and help that's needed is connecting and getting to those in need. Um, You're right, last time local government took quite a a, a proactive and a heavy hand in, in all of this in terms of the support. And the government uh, came to the party and provided some financial um, support, you know, to, to support that. Um, what we're seeing now is, for example, with MSD, uh, where some of this funding is available through the, the New Zealand Food Network, that it's actually a, a coordinated focus that there are government expectations that that support gets out on the ground as soon as possible. And it does rely on the community organisations that are connected in with the local food network and hub to get that message out. The MSD have, um, you know, a a community connector role in the organisation that can provide that wraparound support um, for people. And my office have been directing individuals and supporting them through that process as well. Speaking with the Minister of Social Development, Carmel Cipollone, earlier in the week, you know, the the wait times in terms of those that are, are are ringing through um, is, is not that large. So the feedback is exactly that, that that turnaround is really quite um, quite quick. The support is in place. Um, and I think actually a large of it, a large part of it is also uh, due to the fact that we have been here before. And when I talk about Palmerston North, for example, in the wider Manawatu region, the regional leadership group, which I'm a part of, uh, you know, had an opportunity to develop some plans and some learning opportunities for resilience as a result of 2020. And what we're seeing now is that those plans, those connections are kicking in so that people and communities are getting the support that they need. Very good. Um, you have, uh, as, as people are aware, my research for, for these interviews is often just Googling your name and going anything uh. in the last couple of weeks. And one thing that you have made headlines for is your uh, staunch advocacy for the Afghani community in Palmerston North. Obviously, things in Af- Afghanistan are, to put it glibly, not good. Um, New Zealand did uh, try to evacuate some people, I think, successfully, but uh, with <laughs> the bombings uh, and the the new ISIS-K infiltration, that's uh, no more flights, um, which must come as pure heartbreak and fear for uh, a large proportion of our community. Um, What's the plan moving forward? Yeah, there is a lot of fear and heartbreak there. And, you know, even even though that decision has, has now been made, um, the last C-130 Hercules flight 
uh, came out you know earlier i think we were expecting another two flights to depart from kabul airport um the attack meant that that was not possible um and so we had to end that mission uh earlier and prematurely than we would have liked to um so now that the focus for the government and, and the prime minister and minister of defense have spoken on this is is really moving to how we can provide support at the next stage um you know we, we have commitments internationally and globally around humanitarian rights, uh, our commitment also to the Red Cross. I think we've given, as a government, you know, um, three million or thereabouts to the Red Cross um, <clears throat> over time, uh, is, is really looking at how we can continue to play our role um, and the constituents that continue to make contact with the team and I, uh, what we're saying to them is that while, yes, the C-130 has departed, actually we just need to be looking at what next steps we can take. And it's also, I think, really important to acknowledge that the government is keen to do that, but we need to do it in a way that's, that is safe because it is a, a volatile environment. Um, and, you know, the tension between wanting to do that and the, the needs, the immediate needs of Afghani members of our community is really heartbreaking locally. I mean, what, what, you, you, say, you say what the next stage is, but w- what is that? I mean, if there, are, if there is no way to leave the country uh, and get to New Zealand or anywhere else, um, these people are stuck in Afghanistan with the Taliban to the left of them and ISIS-K to the right. What, 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 you, you say, what the, let's move to the next step. The next step appears to me, uh, from, from what I'm hearing from government, to be merely observing and watching it unfold. I think my sort of interpretation of the next step would be, for example, on a number of different fronts. And one would be to continue to process some of those visa applications that have been lodged. Um, We know, or perhaps people don't know, that Immigration New Zealand had put on hold all the processing when we moved into COVID. um, And then that slightly changed when the humanitarian crisis emerged um, so that these visa applications were actually um, considered. So we can continue to do that. There are still uh, family members in Afghanistan for whom people here locally have not actually reached out and, and made any contact with the government for, and I know that because I've had members in my own constituency who have um, only after the C-130 left started to reach out and engage. So there is that opportunity, but it's also actually playing our role as a member of the international community. New Zealand has been really strong in this space over many, many decades, uh, not just in terms of global alliances and opportunities, but as a member of the UN. And so a lot of our next phase focus, I think, actually should be on having conversations um, as to how we can, uh, you know, manage our role in, the, in what is a tricky and difficult space. I, I do not take that for granted. That is an absolute guarantee. But I think, you know, we need to be thinking about how, what these opportunities are to uh, effectively play our role as a global citizen. Well, and, and that, that that's... That's fine, but the, I, I, I say it again. I think I said it last week, and I said it to Ian McKelvey, MP for Rangitiki as well. We are pulling out. There are there will be no New Zealand Defence Force there. Uh, there will be no Defence Force from any country, it seems. Uh, they are trying to keep the peace and encourage democracy and all the rest of it. There are going to be, uh, I'm quite sure, uh, human rights violations in the near future. And the international community saying they want to be good global citizens and helping out, they're not going to be there. We are just going to watch this unfold, aren't we? Well, I think, you know, the the suggestion that there will be human rights atrocities um, is a realistic one. I I certainly don't deny that. Um, But it it, it is difficult uh, for us to, um, you know, 
concretely indicate what the next steps might be apart from engaging with other global partners. Uh, it's it's been made clear that we will not be sending a another you know Hercules or or um, plane or whatever there to to extract people. It is really difficult. Um, it is it is not an easy environment. I get that. Um, it doesn't make it any easier given the heartfelt stories and concerns that I read still on a daily basis that the team and I read, but all I can do at the moment is encourage those members of our community to work alongside them to see what we can put in place for when it's decided what the next stage will be, that we can play our part in that as part of that, um, that those efforts. Indeed. Tangi Utakeri, uh, we are almost out of time, but suffice it to say that Zoom appears to be working rather well, doesn't it? Well, I think it's fine. I mean, actually, what I would say is I know the House has been back this week, um, and it's certainly not something that uh, we in the Labour Party or in the Labour government, we would prefer that actually the House was not meeting because we had individuals from, well, at least one individual from Auckland who travelled, um, you know, to to the Parliament um, and others from other parts of, of the country as well. But what I would say is that Zoom seems to be working fine. Uh, the the leader of the co-leader of the Greens indicated, as I understand it, um, that there were more questions put to ministers uh, about COVID as part of select committees being broadcast on Parliament TV last week than the entire life of the Epidemic Response Committee just last year. And, you know, as a government, we were keen to ensure that we continued with select committees, a great opportunity for members of the opposition and others to question and hold these ministers accountable. But actually, no, National preferred that we didn't do that and that we all went to the House. And those that have seen the House, I think, can form their own judgments about what would have been a much more better, accountable outcome for all. There we go. Tangi Utikeri, a member of Parliament for Palmerston North. Thank you for joining us on the catch-up this morning. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you to uh, the team and the work that everyone's doing. Uh, Stay safe, be kind, and look out for one another. Marvellous. There we go. We'll be back on Monday with another edition of The Catch-Up. We'll be speaking to Jimmy Ellingham from the Manawatu Standard, finding out what they've been reporting on in the last week or so. If you want to listen to this or any other edition of The Catch-Up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate.